This week on Miranda Warnings, we're very pleased to be joined by Linda Greenhouse. Welcome, Linda. Happy to be here. It is really exciting to have you here. Uh, Linda Greenhouse is a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter who covered the United States Supreme Court for nearly three decades for the New York Times. And she's the author of a new book called Justice on the Brink. Uh, I read the book. Uh, it was really uh, enlightening about the Supreme Court's term last year. Uh, tell us, Linda, what was your impetus for, for writing this book? Well, it figured to be an amazing turn in the history of the Supreme Court, because as everybody knows, uh, Donald Trump got three appointments and the October term uh, 2020, which the focus of my book was the term when the three of them were sitting. So the subtitle of the book kind of tells the story. So the title, as you said, is Justice on the Brink. The subtitle is the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the rise of Amy Coney Barrett, and 12 months that transformed the Supreme Court. So uh, I begin by telling the story of the night that Justice Ginsburg died. And uh, Mitch McConnell summons President Trump, who's on Air Force One, flying back from a campaign event. The campaign, really the campaign is almost over because in early voting around the country, millions of Americans were already voting. And McConnell said to Trump, uh, you're gonna do two things, Mr. President. You're gonna fill this vacancy and you're gonna fill it with Amy Coney Barrett. So that launched uh, you know, certainly my interest in what was going to happen this term. And uh, that's, that's what I decided to write about month by month as the term unfolded. Right, and I want to talk about some of that, but just that initial part, that was very compelling. Uh, it's, it really struck me that uh, Senator McConnell was prepared to spring to action um, with what needed to be done so, so quickly. Um, in, your, in your mind, is that something that's uh, typical or, or unusual? Well, it was completely norm breaking. It even broke the norm that McConnell had claimed in 2016 when Justice Scalia unexpectedly died in February of that election year. McConnell said, oh, President Obama can't possibly fill this seat because there's going to be an election uh, nine months from now and the people should have their choice. And then, of course, as I, as I said, uh, the election was ongoing when Justice Ginsburg died. And so it seemed quite unthinkable that McConnell would push to fill the vacancy, given how he had so successively blocked the, the vacancy in, uh, in 2016. But, you know, he went right ahead and did it because he could. Yeah, you, but the other the other thing that I found very striking was, you know, usually when there's a when there's an open seat, the, the president uh, goes in through a very thorough, you know, search process every time. Uh, in this particular instance, it seemed like McConnell had already done the work and said, we've already decided. Oh, yes. In fact, uh, when the Trump administration filled the Kennedy vacancy with Brett Kavanaugh, mm. uh, the president had been urged by some members of his base to nominate Amy Barrett for that vacancy. And Trump said, 
oh no, not yet. I'm saving her for Ginsburg. So it was really wired in part because um, the White House counsel, Don McGahn, uh, was friendly with Amy Barrett. They were both graduates of Notre Dame. Uh, he had pushed for her nomination uh, in the opening months of the Trump administration to the Seventh Circuit and had attended her investiture ceremony uh, for, for that judgeship. And so um, it was, once the decision was made to go ahead and fill the vacancy, it was a foregone conclusion that they were going to fill it with Amy Barrett. Now you make uh, a large part of your book, you talk about you know how the court has changed because of the different philosophies of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who's now been replaced by Amy Coney Barrett. Um, but we've had judges that have been replaced by uh, new judges with different philosophies. What was so different about this particular occasion going from uh, Justice Ginsburg, Ginsburg to Justice Coney Barrett? Well, there were a few things, but I think the most striking was that it left Chief Justice John Roberts with five justices to his right, meaning that uh, the influence that he had been able to exert so successfully in the prior term. And in fact, the first chapter in the book is called The Triumph of John Roberts. And it, it looks back at the 2019 term where he was in the majority and everything that counted. And he was, he was the man in charge. His name is on the door, it's the Roberts Court uh, as a kind of formal matter, informal matter. Uh, but it was the Roberts Court as a functional matter. But once Amy Barrett comes on, um, he, he can't control anything. And that is seen immediately within weeks of her arrival. Uh, people, New Yorkers will remember Thanksgiving Eve a year ago when the court enjoined uh, Governor Cuomo's capacity limitations, COVID-related capacity limitations on uh, attendance at indoor worship services. And in a couple of earlier cases on the court's emergency docket, when Ruth Ginsburg was still on the court, the court by a vote of five to four with Chief Justice Roberts joining the four justices to his left had upheld capacity limitations like that in cases from California, Nevada. Um, this time the court flips and the court chooses uh, religion over public health is, is I think the fairest way to put it. And that was an immediate indication of, um, I, I, as you say, it's hardly unusual for a, a justice with a different philosophy to come on the court and replace somebody else. That happens all the time. But the, the drama of this and the, the kind of downstream consequences of this uh, are, are what we really have to focus on. Right. So we had you're talking about the, the cases regarding the vaccine regulations by the various states and in the, the the term when Justice Ginsburg was on the bench, they were upheld. And then now, six months later, we have uh, Amy Coney Barrett on uh, and her vote uh, is obviously different. And so now the law changes uh, six months later. And we're seeing this in uh, a large number of uh, very important areas, uh, not just the vaccine. And, you know, I heard 
there was an uh, argue, uh, argument on the, uh, one of the abortion cases, and, and I think Justice Sotomayor raised the issue, uh, not just with respect to abortion, but on, on, on all of these switches, where she says, will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts? And so her fear is that by changing like this, that it'll, the, the Supreme Court will look like just another political player. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I think she's right. How do you think that's going to impact uh, the respect uh, for the institution that uh, is so important to our country? Well, you know, we're going to see. I mean, uh... As you as you imply, the court's on the verge of overturning Roe versus Wade, and uh, and polling indicates that eighty percent of the American public does not want the court to do that. Uh, those who want the court to do it are a tiny, albeit highly energized, minority of our population. Uh, so, what happens when the court does what it certainly seems like it's about to do? Put the court to the kind of test that it probably hasn't faced. Um, you know, maybe since the early desegregation and 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 busing, you know, the, those controversies uh, back in the fifties and sixties, it's it's really going to be quite a show. Yeah, you know, you, you said something before about uh, uh, Senator McConnell when he was pu pushing through Justice Barrett, and you said, you know, he he did it because he could, um, and that's somewhat distasteful, but it's also somewhat uh, understood in the political context. When we get to the U.S. Supreme Court, when they're doing things because they can, um, it's a little bit more problematic, especially when we're going against years, you know, five decades of, of precedent when we're talking about abortion. Well, yeah, I mean, the whole notion of stare decisis uh, is not to say that the court can never change its mind, that the court can never reverse itself. But um, the stare decisis, as we understand it, sets out certain standards that have to be met before the court can take a step like that. And um, actually, none of those standards are met here. So, uh, you know, they're, they're going to do it because, because that's why they're there. You know, I wrote a column for the New York Times, which was in the paper um, this past Sunday. And the, the headline on it was that the Supreme Court weaponized. And my argument was uh, that what was unusual about the current situation, not that a president names justices to the Supreme Court who will project his own vision of law and the constitution that we expect that, that happens all the time, but that these three were handpicked to do what they're about to do, which is to take away the constitutional right to abortion that I have to say, uh, remind people in 1973, uh, the vote for, for Roe was seven to two and the seven included three of the four justices named to the court by President Richard Nixon. So this, the, the constitutional right to abortion was not born in partisan politics, quite the reverse. It became partisan because the Republican Party made it to a partisan issue in the interests of 
party realignment and building of a base uh, over time. But uh, that's where we are today, and it's extremely distasteful. Yeah, of course, in your book, you go through in uh, some detail, even though it's about, you know, last year's Supreme Court, you go through the history a little bit of the uh, abortion decision and also the public uh, response to it, which was, uh, um, you know, over the years, uh, as you indicated, um, has changed. Uh, you know, uh, another issue is that we have some justices that were just put on a, on the court, such as uh, Brett Kavanaugh, who, you know, gave assurances to the senators that uh, he had respect for the precedent of Roe v. Wade. Um, how is that going to how is that going to play when, if, if in fact uh, it's overturned or, or uh, you know, changed substantially? Well, I think the public has pretty much lost respect for the confirmation process as it's become, and uh, nominees just kind of check the expected boxes, and the senators don't push back on it. It's kind of a charade, and uh, I'm not sure that the public appraisal of it can get any more negative, but it certainly will be negative if people think back on on those various uh, confirmation processes. Yeah, you know, you've, you've followed the court and uh, certainly um, lawyers have great deal of uh, respect for the court and for precedent. And, you know, it always seemed that the court was one of the few areas that was kind of above the fray. Um, and the picture you're painting, and I'm not saying it's incorrect, is one that is, uh, you know, very uh, uh, disheartening. Um, what do you think we can do going forward? Uh, and I say the collective way of, uh, you know, our, 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 our government, our policymakers, our citizens, what can we do going forward to uh, make, to try to help make sure that uh, our Supreme Court remains um, non-political? Well, I'm not really sure that there's, there's certainly no quick fix, and and you know I read I read all 300 pages of the report of the President's Commission on the Supreme Court, and it's a very thoughtful document. Uh, I think worthy of more respect than it's received, actually. Um, but if you read it, you understand that uh, there's no magic button uh, to be pushed for any of these uh, any of these fixes. And uh, you know what I've said to people is that I think our really our only help lies in politics. Politics brought us to this point, uh, largely because of the inattention that, uh, the, of Democrats to the fact that um, for Republicans, as personified by Mitch McConnell, uh, getting control of the Supreme Court was the number one goal, right? Democrats just have never right. thought that way. Uh, so. If people are upset with the way the court's going, the answer lies in electing people at the local and state and national level who see things the way these voters would like things to be seen. And ultimately, not, again, not a quick fix, um, right. will determine who gets on the Supreme Court. You mentioned and you talk about in the book, you know, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, uh, it's the Roberts Court um, in the term prior. He really was, as you mentioned, the swing vote on a lot of things. And now with uh, Amy uh, Coney Barrett on the bench, as you said, there's five to the right of him. And, uh, you know, 
three to the left. Uh, so where's the center here? Who's the swing vote now on the Supreme Court? Uh, I don't believe there is a swing vote. I think there's a pretty solid block. And, you know, the notion that there's always a swing vote um, is, is really an artifact of our last number of decades when, uh, you know, back in the, in the 70s into the early 80s, we had Justice Lewis Powell. Uh, then we had Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. Then for years, it was the Kennedy court. Uh, Justice Kennedy almost never in dissent with four justices to his left and four justices to his right. And we were living in Justice Kennedy's constitutional world, basically. Um, there, there's nobody in that position today. So I think we have to kind of divest ourselves of the notion that um, there is a, a justice in, in, in the middle with the, obviously there's a median justice because there's an odd number of justices, but uh, a median justice with the power to actually influence the outcome of cases. So we're in a, a kind of a different situation than we've been in many years past where you could on a case by case basis kind of point to, you know, where the swing vote uh, might be, as you said, uh, maybe uh, it was Roberts, maybe before that it was uh, Kennedy. Um, and now we don't now we don't have that kind of certainty any longer. Well, we have certainty that there are <laughs> conservative justices. That's that's going to be pretty darn certain for a lot of important cases. You know, you talked a, a little uh, a little bit in the book uh, about uh, some of the death penalty cases, which I think a lot of that maybe flew under the radar. That was, I thought, very enlightening that the uh, large number of death penalty uh, cases that were uh, and executions that took place in the final um, six months of uh, of President Trump's term. Uh, tell us a, a little bit about, about that and, and why you think that was so. Why, why suddenly in the, in, in the last six months did we have this, this uh, really drastic uh, increase in executions? Well, you're absolutely right that it flew under the radar because of, I think, everything else that was going on, uh, mostly the, the turmoil over, over the election. Uh, why did this happen? I think uh, the president or, or uh, Bill Barr, the attorney general, was making a play to the base. We have a federal death row and nobody's been executed for, at that time, uh, 17 years. And uh, we're going to start emptying death row by executing people. So um, there were 13 executions uh, between July of 2020 and four days before President Biden's inauguration in January of 2021. All of these came up to the Supreme Court in one form or another on the court's emergency so-called shadow docket, and the court uh, did not engage in any of them and allowed every execution to go ahead. Um, and, and the one who was really keeping track of this, as I recount uh, in, in the book, was Justice Sotomayor, who at the end at the last execution four days before the inauguration, really just astonishing. And the facts of that case were astonishing also. I uh, said, you know, this has been a very unseemly, she called it a spree of executions. And she, she wrote a dissent that listed the names of every one of these individuals. Now, 
she wasn't saying that these individuals, you know, deserve some kind of prize. The crimes were, uh, you know, gruesome, many of them. Uh, but that uh, the, the notion that for political reasons, this was rammed through and the court did nothing to, it was to even stop it, nothing to investigate what was happening when they were presented in case after case with uh, reasons for at least granting a stay for further enlightenment. Um, that's, that's what uh, Justice Sotomayor tried to point out to the public. And I think uh, even though the public wasn't listening in, in real time, I think history will take a rather dim view of this particular episode. Yeah, you know, uh, speaking of Justice Sotomayor, um, you know, we talked about the fact that there's no swing, you know, uh, defined swing, swing vote person. It seems to me over the past year, Justice Sotomayor has really moved into be the, the soul and the conscience of the court and is speaking out in on specific cases in, in very broad ways uh, to try to remind the court. Uh, do you think she's has the ability to make any headway with some of the other uh, justices that uh, might not necessarily be inclined right off to agree with her, to to understand the the nature of the the institution and and the impact of of what they're doing. No, I don't, uh, <laughs> and I I don't think she expects to influence those colleagues. She's speaking to the public. She's speaking to history. She's making a record, and I think that's the function that she uh, has assigned to herself as the one that the moment calls for. That she's in a position to do. And um, and I think she's she's doing it quite well, but I don't expect that uh, she's changing any minds inside the court. So you know, obviously, when we when we're looking at the Supreme Court, there's a continuum. Uh, but what struck me about your book was that so much of what you were talking about that occurred last year is so relevant to the cases that are coming before the court this year, that this, this last year was like a prelude, it seems, to some of the things that are coming here, uh, coming up this year. And, and can you, I mean, you obviously have thought about this a lot. Can you give us some you know, insights based upon what you saw last year about what we might expect uh, out of the court this year? Yes, of course. I mean, your, your observation is, is correct. And, uh... You know, I try to make the point that a term of the Supreme Court is not a kind of a standalone, you know, calendar exercise. Uh, it's a, it's an ongoing process, and so one of, uh, as I'm sure your listeners understand, one of the uh, major things the court does, although the public sort of doesn't understand it that way, uh, is is set its own agenda through through the cert process, and in setting its own agenda. I, the court to some degree sets the country's agenda, right? So what I show in the term that the book is concerned with is how this newly empowered conservative bloc makes agenda setting moves that would not have occurred at any earlier time. That is to say, putting the Mississippi abortion case on the agenda, putting the New York State concealed weapon second amendment case on the agenda. Uh, taking a religion case on an identical question that had been denied cert twice before. So 
Uh, yes, of course. I mean, the real impact of the term I'm writing about was to set the stage for what we see playing out uh, this term. Uh, you know, a, a law professor at Harvard named Noah Feldman uh, reviewed, reviewed the book for the New York Times. And I was just baffled by his review because he basically said, oh, she wrote about the wrong year. She should have waited a year. You know, you'd think a Harvard law professor would understand exactly what I just said. And of course, uh, there's no limit on the number of books you can write. So uh, this could be part of a, of a trilogy. Um, so, <laughs> um, so as you know, the, the, the New York State Bar Association, we're based here in Albany. And I know that you served as the New York Times uh, bureau chief in Albany in the 70s. Um, what was what was your impression of of Albany back in the 70s? Oh, it was just fascinating. I, mean, I was really a baby reporter. I was in my 20s when I got that opportunity. And that was for the years of the New York City fiscal crisis. You know, the kind of governmental response to the, the meltdown of New York City's finances was uh, a, a story of major national importance. And, you know, things would happen. As you know, the state legislature is a very leader-driven uh, legislative body. So, uh, you know, the, the negotiations between the, the Assembly and the Senate, the Assembly in those days was controlled by the Democrats and the Senate by the Republicans. And they had to kind of come to a meeting of the minds of what they were going to do. These happened, uh, you know, behind closed doors and bills would be trotted out at midnight or two o'clock in the morning or four o'clock in the morning. I remember quite a few times uh, walking back to my apartment from the Capitol as the sun was coming up. And uh, this was pretty heady stuff for, for, for a young reporter. So my, my memories of the four years I spent uh, covering the legislature are, are um, very uh, vivid and very, very fond, I have to say. So um, there's one more question I want to ask you. You know, um, you, you talk about the big change between uh, Judge Justice Ginsburg and, and Justice Barrett. Um, there's some discussion about whether uh, Justice Breyer uh, might uh, be retiring sometime soon. Do you have any uh, insights on when that might be or, and what the thought it, thinking is on that? I don't, and uh, you know, I've learned over my years in journalism not to pretend that I know more than I know, and I just don't. Well, um, you know quite a bit uh, about a lot of things, and uh, this book, uh, Justice on the Brink, was uh, enlightening. Uh, you think for someone that is, you know, we're reading the papers every day and paying attention, uh, it was really a, a tremendous job in putting all of this together in a in a coherent, uh, themed way, uh, and I recommend it for everyone who is interested in what's going on in the Supreme Court today to look at uh, what happened on the Supreme Court last year in, in Linda Greenhouse's book, Justice on the Brink. So, uh, Linda, thank you for being on Miranda Warnings. Obviously, the topics we're talking about are very serious. We have a little bit of a lighthearted feature on Miranda Warnings called music book or movie, something that interests you. Now, we just talked about your book, Justice on the Brink, but is there is there anything else in the realm of art and entertainment that you might recommend for our uh, listeners? Well, I'm planning to see West Side Story tonight, but I'll, I'll mention one other movie, which is uh, 
uh, Kenneth Branagh's movie called Belfast. Okay. Um, maybe is a bit a bit under the radar, but it's a fabulous movie. I, 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 it's it's gripping and touching story of the the troubles of Northern Ireland. Um, so I, that that's my that's my strong recommendation for this particular movie season. Great, thank you very much, Linda Greenhouse. Thank you for for being with us on Miranda Warnings to talk about uh, your new book, Justice on the Brink. Thanks very much. I appreciate the chance to come on and talk with you. Bye bye. If you like Miranda Warnings, you have the right to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.